The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So um, when Kim uh, mentioned this day long, I was really excited. Um, And I'm really glad that this day long is happening and glad that you're all here. I want to thank you all for coming. Um, The group I practice with in Portland is Portland Friends of the Dhamma. And we have a very, very strong affiliation with a Bayagiri Buddhist monastery um, near Ukiah. And um, that monastery is in the Ajahn Chah Thai forest lineage. And they are Theravadan monks. Um, And as Kim described, um, they have given up every aspect of worldly life um, to ordain and with the goal of liberation. And so um, everything that they have is given to them by the lay community that supports them, including food, uh, their robes, every aspect of uh, their monastery, the toilet paper, everything. Uh, They don't handle money. uh, They don't buy. They don't cook. They don't drive. Um, All of their needs are attended to by lay people. And Kim kind of described this. It's um, somewhat traditional in terms of what happens in Thailand, in Asia, with the lay people's practice as supporting um, the monastic goal of liberation. But they are Westerners, and they have a lot of contact with us lay Westerners. And so they actually have become quite supportive of uh, lay Western renunciation practice. And um, they actually work with people uh, to try to figure out what works for us in our daily lives. And um, there's a small branch of a Bayagiri now about an hour and a half away from Portland. Um, and we've gotten to know those monks quite well. Uh, they often stay with us. And so there's been a lot of interaction around this. And in fact, uh, there are people in my community who have chosen to live on the eight precepts, for example. They're not um, anagarikas. They're not in white. They're not thinking of ordaining. Um, but they actually live on the eight precepts 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And so we often talk about, I'm not one of them, (laughs) we often talk about what that's like to not be part of the mainstream, uh, to not be going to movies, not listening to the radio, not reading fiction, um, not reading pretty much anything outside of Dhamma, um, to only to stop eating uh, by midday, um, not to ordain, not to adorn the body. So, um, you know, they're not wearing jewelry. Women don't wear any sort of scent or makeup. Uh, men don't wear any sort of scent. Um, what it's like, actually, to do that, to make those choices. And um, one of the words that I was really excited to hear Kim use in this context is choice. Because for me, that's what renunciation actually is. And I would argue, actually, that we are practicing renunciation every moment of our lives because we make choices every moment of our lives. And making choices means that we're foregoing whatever it is that we aren't choosing. So the question for me, and for example, when you choose to meditate, 
you're choosing not to do anything else, right? You're choosing not to read. You're choosing not to hike. You're, cho- you're choosing to meditate. And as Kim talked about, if you have a regular practice, you're choosing to make that part of your life. When you're meditating, you're choosing to follow your meditation object, not to follow your thoughts. So you're letting go all the time. When you choose to eat, you're choosing not not to eat, right? Or if you're choosing not to eat, that's your choice. The question is, what principles are guiding your choices? So within the context of lay renunciation practice, it's actually harder for us than monastics because monastics have clear sets of rules that guide their choices. Um, In the Theravadan tradition, the monks have 227 rules, the nuns have 311. And then there are a whole host of rules outside of those rules. There are literally thousands of rules that govern their lives. We don't have those. What the Buddha gave us was um, five or eight precepts as lay people. So we are definitely fashioning this and I would say as Kim was mentioning I think that as Westerners now we're on the vanguard of trying to figure out what lay devoted practice what lay renunciation practice can really be about so um, in the context of uh, Abayagiri for example they have um, an Upasaka program and that program means that you go to the monastery once a month, not necessarily related to a lunar phase day, although it might be, um, for teachings. And it's in exactly the way Kim described that um, in that traditional sense of the monastics holding the teachings and the lay people supporting them in order to receive the teachings. But these aren't just teachings about how to live a good life. They're teachings about how to become liberated whether you're in robes or not. Um, And the commitment, um, very often for people, involves uh, what Kim talked about as uposita practice. And this is, and they're actually a little bit flexible about it, so they will tell you that if it doesn't work for you to practice on the lunar days, so to practice on the full moon, new moon, or quarter moon days, then pick a day of the week if you want to do a weekly practice. And I have a friend, actually, who practices on Fridays. That is her uposita day, whether it's a lunar day or not. They also say that it's really the spirit of the practice that matters. So if you can't finish your daily eating by noon, finish when you can. But hold that spirit that you won't be having... A dinner. You won't be having a big dinner. Um, in fact, you probably won't eat at all after you finish your midday meal, um, except for what are called allowables, and different traditions have different allowables. But the point of allowables is really medicinal. It's to allay hunger that could interfere with practice. So it's not about eating. It's about the level of nourishment any person needs in order to sustain practice on that day. And on Uposita days, generally people commit to the eight precepts, as Kim mentioned. So um, 
that means, uh, and I do this, I actually have a new posa to practice. My husband and I practice together, and on the lunar days, um, we take the eight precepts in the morning as part of our morning practice. And um, we observe the three additional precepts, and we observe uh, celibacy, that change to the third precept that is involved when you take the eight precepts. Um, And then... 24 hours later in our morning practice, we go back and take the five precepts. So we're actually quite formalized about how we do it. We don't usually finish eating by noon. I just I have to be honest. Sometimes it's as late as two. Um, but again, it's the spirit in which we're holding it. Um, how um, removed from life I can be on any given day really depends on what's happening in my life. My goal is, as Kim described it, a Sabbath. It's a complete day of practice, um, possibly involving going out to the hermitage, maybe offering the meal that day if I can. Some days I can't do that. I have work deadlines. Um, I can't take... What I like to do is do what I call a media fast on those days, so I won't go near my computer, (laughs) even to check email. Um, And I'll post a vacation message, let people know I'm not doing it um, out of kindness and consideration for others so they're not waiting for me to respond as I normally would. Um, And I take those as really as Sabbaths and as days when I can really practice. Uh, I try to listen to Dhamma talks, try to do both sitting and walking meditation when I can. Um, If I read, it'll be uh, Dhamma. Um, I I won't even read... Nonfiction. <laughs> I'll actually limit my reading to Dhamma. And those are wonderful days when I can have them. But I also try not to give myself um, a lot of grief for the days when I just can't do that. Um, when really the sort of bare minimum eight precepts is really all I can do. Um, because Mostly because I have to work. Um, and I remember uh, a fellow member of my community asking one of the monks about, well... I really want to observe Uposita, but my family's coming into town, and one of the things we do as a family is we have dinner together. And he said, look, it's the spirit. He said, don't interfere with your family relations, right? So choose maybe to do it a different day. Or do it that day, but hold the spirit of it. So they can actually be quite understanding and helpful. Uh, in terms of helping us develop practice, renunciation practice, if you will, as lay people. Um, I also want to mention that practice as a lay renunciate is quite strong in Thailand itself, um, and especially among women. Um, It could be that that's because women can't fully ordain in Thailand, but there's uh, women called Maichis, who live on the eight precepts, and their lives are completely devoted to practice. They look like monastics. If you looked at them, if you saw their behavior, you would think they were monastics. But because they can't formally become that, that's how they choose to live their lives. And if you're interested, um, Upasaka Ki um, is one. She was a Maichi and um, an extremely devoted practitioner um, and probably achieved fairly high levels of attainment, um, and her writings are great 
Um, they're hugely inspirational. And when you think that you're reading a lay person, it's even more inspirational, I've found in my experience. So um, my own way of practicing um, is, as I said, I, I have a, a new posted to practice. Um, I, when I go on retreat, I'm always on eight precepts, no matter where I am. Um, I just find that it supports my retreat practice immensely. Um, And it's such a great container for trying that out. In fact, if you go on a monastic retreat, you will be on eight precepts. It's how they're structured. Um, And it's really great to try. I have heard people say, and in fact, when I first took it on, I thought, I can't do this. There's no way I can't have an evening meal. I'm going to be hungry. It's all I'm going to be thinking about, right? And I found that it actually really supported my practice to let go of thinking about food. And, you know, I've done a lot of practice at Spirit Rock, um, and they're hugely supportive, actually. When they know a retreat is eight precepts, they supply allowables for the evening. Or if you tell them that you're on eight precepts, they support you. So they'll have juice available for you. They'll have chocolate. One of the allowables (laughs) is dark chocolate. Uh, Another allowable, actually, in in the Thai tradition, um, in Burmese traditions and Sri Lankan traditions um, that are also Theravada, what's allowable is different. So allowables are hugely culturally influenced. We're in a Thai tradition, so uh, ginger... including crystallized or uncrystallized ginger, Um, cheese and dark chocolate are allowables. Fruit juice is allowable, tea, soy milk. So when you start to think in those terms, it starts to loosen this notion a little bit. Um, When I first started Uposta practice, actually, I used to look forward to having allowables. It was like party time, right? Chocolate, cheese. I would buy myself great cheeses, right? And then I thought, this really isn't the spirit of what I'm doing. (laughs) And so I have learned to look at my intention. When I go for the chocolate, what is it that's really going on? Do I really need it? Do I really need to sustain myself right now? And if I don't, then I work with what it's like to let that go. Um, So it really is entirely about practice, and about mindfulness, about looking at what is going on with every choice that we make. Um, In 2013, I was on a retreat in May um, up at uh, a monastery slash retreat center in Canada, And it was led by the senior resident monk of the Hermitage that's near us. And I know him quite well. Um, And he was really going on about renunciation during this retreat. Um, For some reason, that was his theme. And I can be very influenced by things I'm hearing. And um, so I thought a lot about renunciation. I also know for myself that if I form an intention the best way for me to actually carry through is to announce it to other people. So I thought, what can I give up? What can I actually practice with? 
And it occurred to me, I love to read fiction. So I decided that for the remainder of the year, I was not going to read fiction. And before the retreat ended, I announced it to the group, which meant that I had to do that because I know a lot of people in that group, and I also knew the monks. And so they were going to be asking me. So I knew I had to carry through because the threat of the shame of saying, well, I couldn't really. So I, had to, I actually had to practice with it. And actually, that's the point I want to make, too. I think another thing that makes it harder for us as lay people is that we're practicing with renunciation in our own lives, in our own contexts. Monastics live in intentional communities where they are supported. I mean, they're not only supported, it's the norm of their life. And it isn't for us. And that makes it harder. So to the extent, if you want to try to take on renunciation practices, I would suggest that you do it with other people so that you have one of the things they have, which is accountability. And you have support. And if you're doing it together, it really helps. I am so blessed that my husband does this practice as well and that we practice in a community of lay people that supports it. So I would suggest that you actually form your own communities to support you in it because it really helps. It really makes it easier. So from uh, June through December 31st, I did not read fiction. And at first, it really felt like I was giving up something huge because I felt like it's so, I do it. I, I just love reading novels. Um, but then it, it seemed okay. But then I thought, well, I didn't say that I would only read Dhamma. So um, I turned to biographies. Because biographies... <laughs> are a lot like fiction, right? There's stories. There's character development. There's plot development. And so it became a little bit like the chocolate. With Uposita, I realized what I was doing. I was just substituting. I hadn't really let go. I mean, I had to let go in a small way, but I hadn't really let go. So I stopped that. And... Really, at that point, actually, I was kind of lucky, too, because um, I had started the Buddhist chaplaincy program uh, offered by the Sati Center, so a lot of the reading was supplied for me. And it was Buddhist, and so um, I had that to read. And reading's a huge part of my life, by the way. I should explain that also, that I've been an avid reader uh, since I could start to see what letters actually were. Uh, I was taught to read at, like, the age of three or four and I've been an avid reader ever since. It was a huge part of my life. And um, so that was lucky, right? And I really began to limit my reading to see what it was like. Um, And it felt good, actually. It felt good that I kept the commitment, if nothing else. Um, It felt good that I formed an intention and I followed through on it, and it almost didn't even matter what that was, other than the fact that it was a wholesome intention. Um, Because we can form intentions to let go of things for not completely wholesome reasons. And so it's it's good to to look at why we're doing what we're doing, not only what we're doing, and to continually monitor that and see what it's about. 
Um, but I have to admit that on January 1st, 2014, I picked up a novel. <laughs> it wasn't a practice that I had kept, that I intended to keep. Um, but it was good to have done that, actually. It was good to know that I could do that, and it was good to see what supported it um, and where the struggles were. And the struggles were completely in my mind. The struggles were completely the issue of, why can't I do what I want to do right now? And the answer was, because I made the commitment, not because there was any external force saying, you can't do this. So watching the struggle between what I wanted and what I had committed to do was really important. And I think it's really what renunciation practice ultimately comes down to is what Kim was talking to about as the attachment to sense desire. Because right? I was a pure, unadulterated sense desire. And I really got to come face to face with the attachment to it and see what it was about and learn about it. Um, I also meant to say, I'm sorry, that if you have any questions or comments that come up while I'm talking, please raise your hand. Feel free. Um, there's a mic over here, and we'll pass it to you so your question can be recorded. Um, and, you know, maybe there'll be discussion that comes out of it. And don't wait um, for a Q&A period. So, um, yeah, does anyone at this point have any questions or comments? Yeah, thank you. Thanks for sharing this. Um, would you be willing to say a little bit more about your intentions in foregoing uh, fiction? You know, <laughs> what, what, what was behind that? What were some of the thoughts you had about that? Yeah. Um, well, I was listening. Um, the monk, his name is Ajahn Sedanto, And as I listened to the things he was saying um, about renunciation and... Um, he can be a very, um, uh, in some ways, he can be a very austere monk in terms of his own practice. Interpersonally, he's wonderful. He's very warm, um, very friendly, um, and in terms of his own practice. Um, and so I thought, I could benefit. I could benefit from a little more discipline. I could benefit from really taking on um, letting go of something that I hold dear. And I chose that because it was unique to me. It wouldn't affect my relationship with my husband. I thought about, you know, not um, watching movies, that sort of, but that would affect both of us because that's an activity we do together. So I had to come up with something that was unique to me. Um, and so that was really... Um, where that choice, that specific choice came from. It was something that I could do without affecting him um, or affecting my community, um, my friends, my family. Um, and it was really about, um, it seemed, it's, you know, after the sort of initial um, getting used to the idea of uposita practice, doing eight precepts, 
that seemed to be pretty easy. It didn't seem to be that challenging anymore in terms of letting go. And so I wanted to pick something that would challenge me more, that would push my envelope. Yeah. I, I think, you know, renunciation sort of represents that in the Western culture, that it really pushes the envelope of our cultural norms. Um, but I chose to take that as a positive and to see what that was like. Yeah. Mm-mm. I got it. Yeah. Um, don't you think that what's behind doing or not doing can often be fear? For example, how will I... I mean, the fear of not being able to read novels, of not being able to have whatever satisfaction reading those novels gives you. I remember the first time I did eight precepts, my fear was that I would get a migraine because I need to eat every few hours. And I thought, how will I be able to practice if I have a migraine? But it was interesting to see that I could get beyond that because when you're practicing intensively, something happens in your entire system that deep concentration, and it, it just, you don't, I didn't get a migraine, and, it was, and I loved it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I, I think that um, fear is a lot of what holds us back. Um, and it, it may even be fear of not knowing, right? We know our habits and routines. We know the consequences of things we've done many times before, we don't know what it's going to be like when we do something different. I mean, it's like taking practice on. It's like meditating, like looking at our minds for the first time, right? It's exactly in the same vein. And so it's, there is a bit of courage, if you will, to say, I do want to change. I will be happier if I change. And this is a way I can explore how to change, Right? Because we are changing when we take on a renunciation practice, whatever it is. So it's just um, maybe a new form of doing the same thing we're doing when we undertake to practice to begin with, which is freedom. Yeah, no, I, I, I think, and I, I have exactly the same thing. I get migraines when I get hungry, and I had exactly the same fear, and I had exactly the same result, which is, um, and I still get migraines if I'm hungry, if I'm not practicing. But in a retreat context, I have never gotten a migraine from hunger. So, yeah, I think you're right. I think there's something systemically that happens in the body that takes care of us that way. Yeah. Um, this discussion is um, quite interesting to me. I've been uh, doing some dietary sort of looking at it and cleansing for a couple of months. Um, primarily, it started for health reasons to see do I have some sensitivities to certain things and a friend who's a doctor recommended a certain diet for 10 days, which I did. 
And so I gave up um, the things. So the point I want to make is, I don't know if it was you or Kim referred to addiction. Mm -hmm. So now that I'm trying to get back to what can I eat, grains, um, dairy, um, caffeine, and so forth, um, I'm holding the line with um, caffeine, so I'm I'm not doing any caffeine. Um, but I see where, with that, with certain snacks like chips or dark chocolate or certain things, I I can see the mental and physical pull of the addiction, and it's so powerful. It's like I could. In in less than a breath, I could succumb, if you will, mm-hmm. to just getting back on that habit. Yeah. And it has um, really impacted me of uh, with compassion and understanding of people in any kind of 12-step program. Yeah. I mean, the body and mind just... Ha- it, it's developed such a strong habit and addict, addictions. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it as a renunciation practice, but I'm gonna. Yeah, possibly, maybe that'll help. I, I think we we tend to think of renunciation practice as going on a diet, and I don't know how many of you have gone on diets, but I think we all, any one of us who has, has learned that they don't work, right? Because they have to do with this idea of self-denial. But changing our eating habits, that's different, right? We may be doing exactly the same behavior, but it's the attitude we have toward it. So if we know that we'll feel better if we change our eating habits, it's not a question of denial. It's a question of making a better choice. And when, you know, I know my process around things like that because I've now given up sugar um, and carbs to the extent I can, when the desire arises, it is really strong. But what helps is making the choice, not saying, I can't do this, not saying, not even, you know, that there's an external force, my diet that says, I can't do this, or that I won't be a good person if I do this. It's that I know the consequences. And then I can make the choice. And um, I think that's so much what the Buddhist teachings are about, is when we're faced with choices, he gives us guides to making wholesome choices, to making choices that lead to liberation. And then it's up to us. It's up to us whether we actually make those choices or not. He can't make them for us. Nobody can make them for us. So that's what it all comes down to, is the choices that we make and what principles we use to guide those choices. And even though he didn't give us either 227 or 311 rules, depending on your gender, um, he did give us guides. He gave us the precepts. And they are very strong guides for how we choose. Um, And... 
Take Nan Han's tradition, for example, the fifth precept is much broader than simply not ingesting substances that can alter the consciousness, because that's sort of the basic, the way we usually approach the fifth precept. I, I undertake the precept not to um, consume intoxicating drink or drugs that lead to carelessness. He broadens that widely, and he includes what we feed into our mind. So he talks about what we watch, what we read, what we hear. And that's not even an eight-precept practice. That's a five-precept practice. And it's about what you choose to allow into the senses. And the Buddha, when he talked about guarding the sense doors, which he does quite a lot, he wasn't just talking to monastics. He was talking to lay people as well. And his advice was to guard the sense doors, to not even let it come in to begin with. Because if you let it in, it influences you. It's the same thing like, you know, if you take that first bite of the chocolate, you know, you've let it in. And the hunger becomes stronger. So he said develop habits of sense restraint that keep you from even exposing yourself to the temptation. Yeah. Now is it on? Um, I um, was drawn to this day long um, of renunciation, um, not because I'm practicing to be a lay Buddhist, but because I uh, really uh, recently had an experience about, well, have had for a few years now, this experience of um, giving up things and having a greater spiritual experience and um <clears throat> i am a food addict and i gave up certain foods i mean in order to be a food addict and survive um and through renunciation i guess um you still have to eat but you ha- you know i eat in a very structured way but in our society that is like you said um just not an idea that people really can wrap their heads around. How do you give up these things when they are so freely offered? Um, You know, there's just such an abundance everywhere. So I eat in a structured way, and I have, you know, at each time, you know, there's certain things that that are allowable, and (laughs) every time I approach one of those, it becomes this you know, this little window that just expands, like things I never even ate before, suddenly it's allowed, and I will just find it and go crazy with it, like something like sugarless gum. I have never chewed sugarless gum like I do as a food addict now. Mm -hmm. So I I just recently let it go because it's like very unpleasant to watch and to experience and so as like and and who gives up sugarless gum i mean you know right so anyway um i just uh appreciate a lot of what you said you talked about um doing this with other people i do this with other people i'm part of a 12-step group i need those people 
to, you know, I cannot do this by myself. Yeah. So, um, anyway, just wanted to. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's, um, it isn't the behavior itself. It's what's going on in the mind around it. It's where the attachments are. It's the Four Noble Truths. Right there, you know, looking at, am I suffering? I may be doing something that to all appearances is quite wholesome, but I may be suffering because there's an attachment. I mean, we can't even suffer in having a meditation practice if we're, if we're attached to the idea that we're meditators, you know, or that we have had certain insights or whatever. If it becomes an ego identification, we're suffering. It's that simple, and it's that complicated. <laughs> because looking at our intention, we never have pure intentions, pretty much for anything we do. We're human beings. It's usually mixed. But it's in knowing what's really predominant and knowing what our real intention is and then doing our best to conform our behavior to achieve what really is our goal, which is becoming free. Yeah, we have a, just another minute or two, so. So I just, um, is it on? Yes. Okay. Uh, I had a question. You call the Apasada practice? Is that what you're calling? Okay. Um, I've never heard of it so it's, uh, as a practice, so it's, uh, I'm very interested. And so I guess my question is just, one of the eight um, precepts is not sleeping on higher luxurious beds. Yeah. So how does I have a nice bed at home? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I don't know, like thinking like I sleep on the kitchen floor. Or? Yeah. Uh, so I guess I guess how you practice. That's a great question. I don't. Uh, so in the monastic rules, if your bed is higher than eighteen inches, it's too high. Okay. I've never mentioned measured how high my bed is. Um, it, it probably would be considered luxurious, but I don't change beds once a week. Um, really kind of more the spirit of it is how am I using sleep? So, for example, one instruction is for those of us who like to, when we wake up in the morning, we like to kind of snuggle in, catch a few more minutes in bed, all nice and warm. On to practice days, when we wake up, we get up. That's, uh, yes, exactly. That was my response. Ooh, I love being in bed for that, ex- just luxuriating. So that's the question. Is there, a, what is going on in those moments? It could be that I wake up at two in the morning and I really ought to go back to sleep. It's probably not good for me. I haven't gotten enough sleep or whatever. So I'll, I'll turn over and go back to sleep. But if it's like 6.30 and I know I'm awake, I know I could doze, but I know I'm awake. I'll get up. Yeah, so that's really... Um, there are people who do. There are people who, you know, take mattresses and put them on the floor. Um, it's something to explore for, for your own self, just like all, all of our practice is about exploring what's going on in our mind with every choice that we make. So, you know, it may change for me. I may decide that I really need to move the mattress onto the floor. Yeah. Well, thank you all for your kind attention. It's just, it's so lovely to be among a group of people who are interested in this. <laughs>